Good evening, folks. Welcome to Radio Station XITM, Episode 2. In our first episode, we learned of a strange document D.I. James LaGrange was given while in the Solomon Islands, Investigationes Theologicae Mundorum, Investigations of Worlds. James spoke about the fundamental conflict between believing world refers to an objective reality we all share versus there being multiple individual worlds, phenomenal worlds, based on an organism's particular sensory and cognitive apparatus. suggest we plunge into the beginning of the document in its own words. Right. But first, I want to say a bit more about the claim made in the first episode that religious and spiritual concepts such as God carry paradox with them because they embody contraries in order to be meaningful. This derives from contradictory conditions we all must experience in our lives. We need religious concepts that attempt to explain them or come to terms with them. For example, the infinite possible interpretations of the meaning of death against the singular finality of its event. One example of how these contraries are juxtaposed in our experience was represented in Frederick Rausch's Thesaurus Anatomicus, this was a 10-volume work published between 1701 and 1716. It described the successive contents of his Kunstkammer. That was a room of multiple cabinets that contained these meticulously preserved human and animal body parts, diseased organs, tumors, deformed skeletons, and other anatomical structures. But the displays were remarkable. Rausch created allegorical tableau of these items where nature revealed its inherent possible forms. Juxtaposed were the oppositions of human experience, healing and the morbid, the beautiful and the monstrous, the meaningful and meaningless, the quick and the dead. It reflected a view of life in which death itself was always an inherent presence, as if it were part of the fabric 
of our organs themselves. Think about phenomena that give rise to the fear of the meaningless of our lives, starting with so-called natural death, the process by which a functioning, living being gradually loses its powers and capabilities through aging, disease, and the dissolution of its mental life. The organism can no longer do the things that were meaningful. They have aged out of their meaningfulness. Life ending in death through this process is the realization of encroaching meaningless under what might have been thought to be the best of circumstances, to live a long life. Then there is the fact that reality itself is always changing, transitory reality. This can be seen in the radically different phase transitions of the universe through its cosmological history, but it can also be seen in an immediate sense, the realization that the perception of reality by conscious beings is bound by some given time and place. What was meaningful at one point may cease to be so at any other point. If the nature of reality is always changing, then even the most foundational discoveries of science may be impermanent. Reality has its own birth, growth, dissolution, and death. So there arises the need for something to be eternal. I don't know what that is. Then consider the mode of death that comes closest to permanence in a field of changing living organisms and a constantly changing reality. Self-sacrifice, where life is freely given for the sake of the survival of another life. Perhaps life itself is a permanent value, but our definition of life is bound by conditions for its existence on this planet. Perhaps there exist planetary worlds in which forms of life are radically different from ours, even directly hostile to what we call life, where claims for the permanence of life as a stable value sit against the absence of life as a conscious choice by the living. What then about unanticipated, unexpected death at the height of one's powers? death while doing the things that brought meaning to life, what one might call beautiful death. This might be considered an ironic fulfillment of meaning, yet that meaning exists only in reference to the individual whose life is suddenly taken, not to an unchanging world, only perhaps to the loss of some beneficial discovery never achieved. Finally, there is the complement to self-sacrifice with respect to its possible permanence, execution. As atonement for crime, it may be the only full compensation possible, but that assumes there is anything that could count as atonement. At best, it ends the possibility of future crime. Well, enough of that. Let us now think about the meaning of meaning, which is where things begin in this manuscript. The author says, suppose we interpret the concept of an infinite ground of being and meaning to be what people speak about as God. 
Such an object is worthy of worship for one thing, an object to be loved, but also feared for another thing, yet still given absolute allegiance to. You can't imagine such a thing. So the author begins asking this one question, then sets off on a rather wandering internal dialogue, like the sinuous paths lost among the waves of the Tulagi shore, perhaps. It asks the question, what does it mean to hold a concept of God? The question, put in that form, appears to be a question about meaning itself as well as about God. Is that a question of theology? Is that what theology is about? Perhaps it would be better to call it a kind of primitive theology, a proto-theology, figuring out what kind of thing theology is before asking about its objects of inquiry. Theology, Wittgenstein once remarked, is like a grammar that tells us what kind of object anything is. Can theology tell us which is correct among an endless range of ideas about the kind of object God is? Whose theology tells us such a thing? What are the criteria for kind of object? Does God belong to a certain class of entities, possibly a unique class? Or is God's identity indiscernible among a myriad of concepts of entities of an as yet uncertain kind? One might naturally think that a concept needs to be a member of a class of a certain kind to be intelligible. Perhaps it should be said that we do not first know what kind of object a thing is. Instead, we assume it and then perhaps examine it and only after investigating do we know what kind of object it is. That suggests a certain set of procedures may be involved to determine the criteria for identity. We recall the different statements made about the concept, when they are made and in what cases. One can imagine making a list, but how then does one know what should be on the list? Criteria for applying a concept in a particular case involve knowing or recalling the phenomena involved, believing, thinking, hoping, wondering, and the context for those phenomena. Therefore, criteria have to be elicited rather than listed in advance, like, say, standards. Criteria may be about correctly applying a concept, but also about what counts as incorrect. So is an incorrect application of the concept an atheology? Criteria do not settle the existence of anything. Rather, they are about what that something is, its identity in a way that reflects our mutual attunement to it, as expressed in ordinary language. Knowing how criteria are applied brings the concept to consciousness. Here we discover the conventions we share are tacit agreements. Agreements about the concept of God and how it is applied thus would seem to depend on 
forms of life we share, but it is uncertain if such agreements can be found to actually exist, and that should raise uncertainties about shared forms of life taken for granted. Unfortunately, it often does not. Okay, so primitive forms of theology, as I see it, may be acts of cognition that begin in confusion, seek answers to where the ideas have come from, then end in wonder. In the end, one wonders, is wonder satisfying? What is remarkable is that, for some, it is. Imagine the confusions spawned by these questions. How does the concept of God form in consciousness? What purpose does the concept serve? Is it a single concept? Is it instead many unrelated ideas? Are those ideas all intelligible? What are their family resemblances? So we feel as if we have to penetrate the phenomena. For example, we need to know how individualized the holding of some concept of God is against its reflecting the shared experience of the people. It's kind of like Seinfeld's experience discovering no rental cars available after his having made a reservation. He says, it's not the taking of a reservation that's important. Anybody can take a reservation. Here, take it, take it. It's the holding of the reservation. In many respects, these are all odd questions. At least they would appear so when put to someone for whom saying, God is nearer to me than I am to myself, is the first article of faith. Is making that utterance the occasion for wonder? There is oddness in the very concept of God and how we use it. Children are taught to pray. They are given words to use in their prayers. When they pray, it seems like conversation, but a conversation to which there may be no response. Children hear adults swear and say, God damn it, and wonder to what does the word refer that does the damning? Who is that? Imagine someone saying, but I know God is inside of me and laying their hand over their heart to prove it. We are forced to ask what kinds of questions are being asked here. Questions about questions? Then the manuscript goes on about sense and reference. Here's Father Martin three times who jumps in. Hi, Jimmy. I'm in a trance, I think. But where's the Holy Trinity? It's only there in the air you breathe, Father. But what's this business about criteria in the document? Here's what I make of it so far. Because it reminds me of how Wittgenstein talks about criteria, somewhat. Criteria referred to our everyday sense of meaning in natural language by reminding us of the phenomena through which we determine whether an object is a certain kind of thing. So criteria are accepted, occasionally adopted. Under certain circumstances, they are used as standards to be met, like in judging a contest, like 
surfing or skateboarding, but criteria themselves don't establish with certainty the existence of something, particularly when that involves an inner mental state, like holding the idea of God in mind. So there may be criteria for understanding when someone is speaking or acting out of faith in God, as opposed to simply responding to the requirements of some powerful ruler or lord, or of someone being forced to behave morally by following state law. The appeal to criteria does not remove skepticism about whether one speaking about God has truly uttered God's word or commandment, nor does it eliminate uncertainty about a person's moral motivation. I think particularly in religious or moral settings, criteria are acknowledged as in a kind of promise of shared understanding, where they are the implicit basis for an appropriate human response to someone in need of pastoral care, someone who is in pain, or who is feeling alone or alien. But there is a lot of background factual knowledge required here to make a response authentic. But again, criteria do not determine whether a religious utterance is an instance of someone actually believing what they utter about God, or they're even being in a position to believe such a thing. But they do put the hearer in an arena of other facts and human needs that are shared. One can share someone's belief without himself believing it, give tacit acknowledgement of it, I suppose. There's no guarantee of any shared pre-existent knowledge, but shared language at least is used as a means of coming to know what kind of object something is and what its relative value among various people is. So in that sense, criteria put people in a position of collaboration to move towards shared knowledge, to agree on certain conceptual models of things, for example. Language itself, however, does not settle any claim to know with certainty, even though there's no agreed upon higher authority beyond language to determine validity. The problem is that as part of language, criteria, like all other concepts, except possibly certain primitive mathematical elements, are subject to the consequences of the fluidity and continual evolution of language. Even if the authority used is the word of God itself, the language through which that authority is expressed is still human language. And so there always remains the possibility of skepticism here. And criteria may come to reveal what we never could have agreed upon, as well as what we might agree upon. For example, it could turn out we discover that reality validates Everett's many worlds or relative state formulation of quantum mechanics, that there is no wave function collapse, implying that all possible outcomes of quantum measurements are physically realized in some world or universe. In this case, contrary positions about the existence of things must be superpositioned necessities, 
in multiple states at the same time in an uncountably infinite number of universes. What does all this mumbo jumbo mean, practically speaking, about how we talk about the objects of religion? When you appeal to criteria, you can provide a supposed instance of what we say, but then you also recognize that words can force themselves upon us in certain religious contexts. Appealing to criteria produces the expectation that we are in agreement about the meaning of a concept, but this may be shown to be completely mistaken. The tacit agreements on which many uses of language about God rest can mislead us into assuming we're thinking and experiencing the same thing. The appeal to criteria can give the appearance of mutual attunement, but the mutuality may be faith only in humanity as a community of sorts, not certainty about some shared object of faith. But what beyond language we might appeal to remains quite unclear. It may even be the case that the absence of apparent attunement about the concept of God masks an underlying agreement. For example, about a common object of obligation or concern that has nothing to do with any particular concept of God, as how the concept of God is invoked when a shared need is there, such as after a hurricane or a flood or other natural disasters, when what people need is each other, at least at first. The need for explicit criteria may be a marker that we don't know our way about, that we are lost in our words. You feel this. I feel this with language used in public settings, say at funerals, where the language may make what is shared become more elusive, where the falseness of repeated phrases of comfort only reveals the phenomenon of loss that is particularly private. So in the end, there may be criteria for something's being belief behavior, but none for the existence of the belief itself, let alone for the object of belief. If the concept of God is ultimately not coherent, but if genuine belief behavior depends on the concept being at least coherent or intelligible, then it can seem very likely that the believer himself cannot know if they believe. This may just be a necessary characteristic of belief. It's as if belief privatizes itself. But it may take just that failure of certainty for believers to find themselves in a community of believers where the inherent ambiguity of belief and its object can itself be shared. It all feels rather like what one does as a post-Holocaust Jew, having given up any rational belief that Yahweh acts in human history, given up even on the existence of God. Such a person may nevertheless find it still makes sense to speak of a holy of holies, and not simply as some analog of a secular human moral virtue and courage, 
but as an expression of a persistent mystery to which one feels unaccountably attached. Perhaps the concept of God makes its appearance when two or more necessary forces are in deadly embrace. This can occur in thinking we understand ordinary experience, but don't, and when we confront ordinary experience and survive. When two contraries are needed, when things that compete with each other, like something both providing causation and being caused are required, or when both comfort and fear must necessarily coexist. Anyway, this is the kind of thing in the manuscript I find engages me, that pulls me in, you know, like Michael Corleone in The Godfather Three saying, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Then the manuscript runs through a bunch of stuff on sense and reference. I'm not sure how much it illuminates on the question of meaning of a concept like the ultimate ground of being and meaning, but here's what it says. Some questions about meaning naturally appear to be about the content or sense of the concept God. What is the nature of the entity designated? Tradition treats this as a matter of ontology, the study of being that asks about what there is, what kinds of entities exist, what are the categories of things claimed to exist in the world or some possible world, horses and heroes, numbers and nothing, properties and particulars, protons and photons, souls and shadows, consciousness, God. So even a primitive theology might answer, what kind of thing is God said to be? Other questions concern the denotation of the concept, what some call the reference of a word. Of course, this must also include the matter of whether or not the concept has reference to anything identifiable, whether such a thing could exist, the concept's ability to be rendered meaningful, coherent, so that it could possibly exist. Questions of reference such as, are there photons, are generally treated as empirical questions. Their answers are verifiable by experience, provable by experiment, now even directly by observation with the right equipment. With regard to the concept of God, whether its reference can turn out to be an empirical matter is itself at issue. Its answer may depend on answers to questions of the first sort. Does God refer to a possible object of human experience in some sense? Or is it mysterious and unknowable in a more fundamental way? So there's the matter of the kind of clarity we are looking for. Some theologies concern themselves with the process, the act of holding. What is it like having a concept of God, holding it in mind? What are the phenomena in actually entertaining the concept of an ultimate ground of being and meaning? The former engages the experience of an entity in some ways like a person. 
at least something a person could have a relationship with. The latter seems to engage questions about what counts as meaning. In either case, the focus here is on the state of human consciousness. The concept of God seems both dependent on and bedeviled by language, nor does it help when a theology identifies God or ultimate ground with language itself, naming God logos, intelligible word, as if to assert the claim that this particular concept must be as intelligible as language which makes experience intelligible. The use of logos covers many things. Some simply refer to the spoken word or speech. Some are about inner states, one's opinion or intention. Some imply claims to discourse leading to knowledge. After Heraclitus, the emphasis was on logos as a principle of rational order. But even this use varied. Aristotle thought of logos as a mode of persuasive argument. Neoplatonists expanded the idea to a generative force from which the universe followed. That understanding suited Christian theology, especially theology influenced by Plotinus's Aeneids and Procus Lysias' uh, elements of theology, and three opuscula. Here, logos meant the divine reality through which all things were made. Plotinus influenced St. Augustine after his early fascination with the Manichaeans. Proclus influenced the late 5th century author of the Corpus Areopagiticum, Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, who falsely identified himself as the Athenian convert of St. Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 34. These mystical teachings impacted the Eastern Church and later the Western Church, including much later the Platonism of Paul Tillich and his concept of God as being itself. For Tillich, just consider it as a thought experiment. The heavenly kingdom of God the Father is conjoined to Plato's eternal world of ideas through a first principle, a transcendent one, Tohen, whose name cannot signify because it is not a being, but being beyond being. It is beyond thought, and yet it confers unity, individuality on all things being beyond being, and yet it acts. So much for reference. As this has played out, it is unhelpful that the distinction between sense and reference has not been facilitated by the term meaning as it is used in ordinary language, for meaning can variously signify both sense and reference, as well as other things. Meaning can be what is actually expressed or intended to be expressed by a word. It can indicate the purpose or end in the use of the word. Meaning can designate a word's significance or value. It can designate its simple reference or denotation. Nor does sense fare much better. It is able to signify a particular meaning or use of a word 
in a claim about something's being intelligible or making sense, the purport or purpose of a word, so much for sense. As a function of language, as early as Aristotle and later St. Augustine, meaning was understood as involving a relationship between two entities, one of which was called a sign, the other indicating some entity to which the sign points. Augustine describes being shown by elders in their bodily movements pointing towards something that a certain sound has some connection to it. But the description also makes mention of their intentions and states of mind, including seeking, rejecting, avoiding, and of the objects pointed to as having a purpose. The idea of meaning from the start appears to involve both value, but also intentionality, which is to say, meaning is about things that matter as well as about information. So we're knee deep in frustration here, and the next section gets a bit technical, but if you put up with it, there are a few tastes of a sweet jam that I think are worth preserving. Much philosophical discussion about meaning has been concerned with theories that account for how meaning represents truth. Whether truth means a correspondence between the meaning of statements and what is actual in the world, or because meaning produces a coherent set of statements that support one another and make them useful. For example, when they constitute the basis for the shared knowledge of a community of users that ultimately leads to scientific understanding. In his 1892 paper, Uber Zinn and Bedeutung on sense and reference. Gottlob Frege emphasized the mistake in thinking meaning just is the object to which some name refers, its reference, instead of something else, its sense. However, standard translations of the title of Frege's paper are not unproblematic since Bedeutung and Bedeutung are most naturally rendered as to mean and meaning, respectively, which alters how the distinction should be taken. It has been argued by one translator, Max Kobel, that Vrega introduced a special technical sense of bedeutung, contrasting what may be designated by the sign, which may be called the reference of the sign, with sense or the way of the signs being given. Vulcan, the name proposed for the planet between Mercury and the Sun to explain irregularities in Mercury's orbit, is not without content or meaning just because the planet is non-existent. Attention to the sense of a concept, however, doesn't mean that reference to objects isn't critical to how meaning represents truth. The extreme of that view was the so-called verificationist theory of meaning of the Vienna Circle of Morris Schlick, Rudolf Carnap, and others in the 1920s and 30s. Here, meaning is made entirely dependent on the ability to define conditions of experience that could show how a given expression is true. 
under such a theory, statements involving concepts of an ultimate ground of being and God would come to be regarded by some as not simply false, but meaningless on the grounds that no conditions of experience could either verify or, more importantly, falsify statements using the concept. Under any such standard of meaning established in advance, one would be forced to conclude that the concept of God is self-defeating. But does that standard count as a valid criterion of how the concept is used? Theories concerned with meaning also extend its application to the realm of the possible as well as the actual, the possible worlds and systems of modal logic. In Naming and Necessity, Saul Kripke rejects what he calls descriptivist theories of names as seen in Frege and Russell. In such theories, proper names are synonymous with definite descriptions whose reference is determined by the name's association with a cluster of descriptions an object uniquely satisfies. Kripke gives counterexamples. If Aristotle died as a baby, he would not satisfy descriptions associated with him as the student of Plato who taught Alexander, but he would still be Aristotle. Alternatively, Kripke outlines a causal theory of reference in which names refer to objects through causal connections with the objects expressed through communities of speakers. Proper names, unlike most descriptions, are what Kripke calls rigid designators. They refer to the object they name in every possible world in which it exists. Descriptions designate different objects in different possible worlds. Richard Nixon refers to the same individual in every possible world in which he exists. The definite description, the person who won the US presidential election in 1968 could refer to Nixon, but could also refer to Humphrey or to others in different possible worlds. All well and good, but of special interest to questions of reference with respect to the concept of God is Kripke's introduction of the notion of necessity a posteriori. A statement such as Hesperus is phosphorus or water is H2O is logically necessary by virtue of the identity of subject and predicate names which refer to the same object but it is something that can be known only through empirical investigation. St. Anselm's ontological argument attempts to establish God as an entity whose existence is necessary. In some versions of the argument, this is discoverable from an analysis of the concept of God itself. The idea of a being that cannot not exist is embedded in the concept itself. If you understand the concept in mind, you are then led to affirm its existence in reality. It is a necessarily existing being. Such a concept of a necessarily existing being, however, is not something that obviously might be a possible object of human experience. 
However, if it could be shown that analysis of the concept of God requires recognition of rigid designators relevant to human experience in the manner Kripke calls necessity a posteriori, then the ontological argument could move beyond being a mere thought experiment from an a priori premise. On the other hand, the more likely possibility is that God has no rigid designators, only a virtually limitless range of definite descriptions that never reach consensus within the human community. Your boy kind of leaves us wicked hanging here, don't he? Maybe he's spending too much time at the packy. Well, doll, think about this expression. God is infinite love. You could say this statement is necessarily true by virtue of the theological identity of subject and predicate. It is moreover true in all possible worlds in which God exists, because it would be absurd to call such a being who did exist, but that was not infinite love, God. However, is the statement meaningful only if considered as a consequence of an a priori analysis of the concept of God? Perhaps you can force its entry into the empirical world. That is, the statement only becomes meaningful when considered as a result of some experience. In the case of Christian theology, this would be based on coming to an understanding of the meaning of God's infinite love as self-sacrifice represented by Jesus' actual death on the cross. But perhaps one should ask, to what extent is meaning even relevant, and for what purpose? Here at the extreme is the view of W.V.O. Quine, who suggests in Theories and Things that meaning is inherently ambiguous and dispensable, and thus without a serious explanatory place in objective science. Over against this would be placed the later work of Wittgenstein, where focus turns to the meanings of words as understood in the context of their actual use in natural language and in terms of the intentions of users. So think about to what sorts of things meaning is applied. What are the criteria for its use? Most typically, meaning is applied to words, to literal and metaphorical descriptions, to symbols, signs, statements, longer utterances or writings. But meaning is also applied to objects, the battleship Arizona, to events, the last Springsteen performance, to certain locations, Uluru, Ayers Rock. It is applied to periods of time, the Jazz Age, to animals, bears, some things have recognizable meaning in and of themselves, an act of kindness. Some things seem meant to be given meaning, a surrealist painting. So where do we end up? For the purposes of our investigation, in a large number of cases, but not for all, it may be useful to distinguish between a strong and a general sense of meaning. In its strong form, when speaking of the meaning of something one specifically has in mind, its intended purpose, its significance or value, and often its relation to some end state. 
These are all not necessarily concurrent, of course, since a thing can have value to someone, but no purpose, like a rock collected from a beach. In its most general form, it may simply designate this sort of thing from that. But even when speaking of meaning in this way, it still matters when something is that X and not some Y, that X excludes at least one Y. Meaning in its most basic and general form is forged when the child begins to perceive one thing is different from another and then makes use of that difference. Perhaps that is the first stage in the emergence of a primitive personal theology. Much of this discussion has been largely relevant to one of five distinctly different concepts of an ultimate ground of being and meaning, the singular God of Western theology and philosophy. Some of it may apply to other concepts of God as well. Some of it may not. We'll have to sort that out as we go along. If you've made it through this episode, give yourself a bloody good shrug. Go out and ski 20 miles and come back and eat a bowl of porridge or toss back an Irish whiskey. In our next episode, we'll hear some more from Jimmy's friends, Dr. Van Ostrin and Father Three Martins and beautiful Penta, of course. Radio Station XITM signing off the air. <laughs>